Our scripture reading this morning comes from the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 4 from verse 23 to 5 verse 12. 4.23 to 5.12 And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So far the reading. This morning's sermon is entitled The Eight Beautiful Attitudes That Go With Kingdom Living. Now the Sermon on the Mount is probably the best known part of all of Jesus' teaching. If you Google it, you'll find more than four million results. But sadly, what, what Jesus teaches in this sermon is probably also the least obeyed part of his teaching. Many people view his teaching as, as good guidelines by a good teacher, but they then choose what to follow and what not. A local poly, for instance, recently said that he keeps his work and his religion apart. In other words, what he believes doesn't influence how he does his work or the policies that he supports. Does that sound like kingdom living? I'll let you consider your verdict on that one. See, we live in a, it's all about me culture. Most people think firstly of themselves and what will be best for them. But that's not what God wants and that's not what Jesus teaches. Over the next two or three months as we build up to the celebration of, of the coming of our Saviour, we'll be looking at, at the eight things that Jesus shares with us right at the start of his sermon. In one sense, this, this beautiful sermon has been provided for us to, to summarise Jesus' teaching. It encapsulates what he expects of all those who follow him. These eight beatitudes, or as I like to call them, these eight beautiful attitudes that go with kingdom living, challenge us about the way that we should think, the way that we should act. Now we'll delve deeper into the meaning of, of each beatitude, but this morning we're going to take just an overall view of what it means to be 
poor in spirit or meek or uh, merciful by focusing just on the first part of each of these blessed proclamations. But before we do so, it's important to, to keep three things in mind. Firstly, that these blessings are framed by the very important statement, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, that we find in verses 3 and 10. What this tells us is that each and every one of these blessings has to do with the kingdom of heaven. It has to do with living in the kingdom of heaven. Secondly, we need to remember that Jesus isn't saying that we need to live in this way in order to be blessed. No, we are called to live in this way because we have been so amazingly blessed. And lastly, it's good to remember that Scripture calls us to be image bearers of Christ. We're called to to reflect his image to those around us. And friends, living out these beautiful attitudes paints a picture then of, of Christ to others in the way that we live in our lives. Living in this way shows the world around us what it is to live a life centered on Christ. Every beatitude has to do with the the kingdom of heaven, with kingdom living. And we're called to live in this manner because we've been so amazingly blessed and also then to show the world what a Christ-centered life looks like. And keeping that in mind then, let's start looking at these verses and as we do so, we have to ask ourselves at least these three questions. What authority does Jesus have to give us these kingdom ethics, these kingdom rules? What does the word blessed actually mean? And then what do these eight Beatitudes teach us about living our lives? Let's first briefly just look at what authority Jesus has to give us these commands or these kingdom ethics. As I mentioned earlier, many people view these teachings as just good ethical guidelines rather than as kingdom rules. The reason they do this is that they they see Jesus as just a good moral teacher rather than as the living God who has authority to tell us how to live. But God's infallible and inerrant word tells us a very different story. Listen to how Matthew's gospel starts. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. Gospel according to Mark begins with the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. And speaking of Jesus, John goes on to say, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing that was made was made. What the gospel writers are saying is that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the promised one. In other words, he is the one who has all authority. And Jesus himself confirms this when he tells his disciple that he's been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Even if we were to just look at, look at just that, that gospel according to Matthew, it quickly becomes obvious that Jesus is the one to whom all authority has been given. We see that in how he casts out demon in the section we read earlier. Casts out demon, he heals the sick, he raises the dead. We see that in his teaching, in his words, in his deeds. We see that, how he's, see that in how his teaching amazes people. Listen, for instance, to what Matthew tells us at the end of Jesus' sermon. 
That's in verses 28 to 29 of Matthew 7. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who has authority. So we see that Jesus has authority by what he says about himself, by what others say about him, by what he's able to do, and by, God, by what God's word says about him. And it's exactly because Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth that he can give us these ethical norms, these norms for kingdom living. These rules of Christian living speak of God's authority and they therefore also demand from us our heartfelt obedience, our heartfelt commitment. For remember Christ's warning towards the end of this sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Folks, these are not just wishy-washy guidelines. These are the words of the one who has all authority, who has dominion over everything. And this is the type of living that Christ demands of all those, all those who profess to follow him. That's the first thing that we need to look at. What authority does Christ have to give us these, these rules, these kingdom ethics? And he has all authority. But let's look at, secondly then, what this word blessed means. It's said that during the plague of about 1,400 years ago, Pope Gregory believed that a sneeze was an early warning sign of the plague, and he commanded Christians to respond to a sneeze with a blessing in the hope that such a blessing would protect them from an otherwise certain death. But that's not the type of blessing that we're talking about here. Some commentators and translators suggest that the word should be happy, not blessed. That happy is a better translation for that Greek word makarios. But while happy does bring out the, the, the joy that's wrapped up with being blessed by God, it doesn't do justice to the, the deeper meaning of being blessed by God. After all, being happy has to do with what? A state of mind, isn't it? Blessed means having an act of favour bestowed upon you. And the one who bestows that act of favour is none other than the Almighty God himself. Beloved in Christ, when you are blessed by God, you are approved by him. You're favoured by him. And there's no bigger blessing than being approved by the creator of the universe. In the words of the priestly blessing, being blessed by God means he has turned his face towards you. He's been gracious to you. He's shown his favour to you. This is the type of blessing to which the Beatitudes refer. And that's the type of blessing that we ought to strive for. The blessing of being approved by God. In other words, doing things that He, that is according to his will. Living our lives as kingdom lives. Living our lives according to these ethical guidelines that God gives us, that Jesus gives us in this passage. What do these eight beatitudes then tell us about living our lives? Friends, these blessednesses, these, these beautiful attitudes aren't items on a menu that we can go and pick and choose. They're inseparable. Each one builds on the previous one. It's like climbing up the stairs of a, of a staircase. So let's look firstly at the bottom step of this staircase or perhaps 
it's better to say, let's look at the foundation on which this staircase is built. Jesus teaches firstly that you will be blessed if you are poor in spirit. Now being poor in spirit doesn't mean you have to view yourself as being of no value or being less valuable than someone else or or being worthless. This cannot be for Christ has died for you and that means that you are of inestimable value to him. Now being poor in spirit means that we've seen the depth of our need for Christ. It means that we have the right attitude by recognizing our total dependence on God. It means that we recognize our spiritual bankruptcy. It means that we see and know that without the power of Christ working in us, we cannot live, sorry, we cannot love others and we cannot forgive others. It means recognizing the depth and the gravity of our sin. It means coming before God in humility, exclaiming like the tax collector, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. It means coming before God and saying in the words of that magnificent song, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to your cross I cling. Helpless, I look to you for grace. That's what poverty of spirit looks like. As I said, we're going to go through these a bit quickly. Is an overview, but then Jesus secondly teaches that those who mourn are blessed. Now please note that Jesus doesn't say, blessed are those with long faces. This isn't what blessing is about. Primarily this is also not about sorrow during a time of grieving or a time of loss, but even though that ought to drive us closer to God, to our merciful and comforting God, Now this has to do with sorrow over our sin. Sorrow over the unrighteousness, uh, our own unrighteousness, both personally and also then the wickedness that goes on in the world. It has to do with sorrowing over sin. So while poor in spirit has to do with confession, this grieving has to do with remorse. In other words, it's about having the right attitude towards sin. In that sense we can say blessed are those who are desperately sorry for their sin if you want to paraphrase that you see when we begin to see our our spiritual bankruptcy it has to lead to godly sorrow over our sin it also has to lead us to sorrow over the sins of others the sins that that pervade our world and friend this, this is good grief this is good mourning for if you are truly grieving over your sin then you also have that magnificent relief of being driven to God's throne for his divine comfort. And as we live out these first two Beatitudes, we we cannot help but see how, how desperately we need Christ. If you understand and feel your need for Christ, how can you then be bold or brash? How can we be arrogant? Now, feeling and understanding our need for Christ has to change our disposition to one of of humbleness, of meekness, of humility. And this meekness does not mean weakness. It doesn't mean being a doormat for everyone. It means having the right attitude towards God and the right attitude towards others. It means recognizing that not everything is about you. It means making use of what God has given you 
without lording it over others. It means being gentle and humble rather than arrogant and brash. And it means to be willing to serve rather than to be served. Recognising the depth of our need for Christ, grieving over our sin and living in meekness before God, they work together to awaken in us a spiritual thirst, a spiritual thirst to live according to, to God's will. As we sang earlier, our heart's desire is to be holy, to be set apart for God. Recognising our need for, for Christ, grieving our sin, living in meekness before God, results in a, in a healthy spiritual appetite to live righteously and for righteousness to prevail in the lives of others as well as in the world. Let me share with you an example of what righteous living looks like in practice. Now, we've heard quite a bit about Ukraine over the past few months. Perhaps you remember that in late 1991, or until late 1991, Ukraine was part of the Soviet Union. And for about the first 13 years after that independence that they gained in 1991, there was quite a bit of corruption and also election fraud in that country. In 2004, a presidential election took place, and it was widely accepted that Viktor Yushchenko had won. However, the ruling party tampered with the results, and the state-run television service started announcing that Yushchenko had been defeated. 47-year-old Natalia Dimtruk was responsible for interpreting that news for the deaf community. She, she was the one that appeared in that little picture at the right-hand side of the screen. And as this newsreader was proclaiming the fraudulent result, she signed the following. I'm addressing everyone who is deaf in the Ukraine. Our president is Viktor Yushchenko. Do not trust the results of the Central Election Committee. They are all lies. And I'm very ashamed to translate such lies to you. Maybe you will see me again. Despite the danger, despite the danger, she couldn't remain silent in the face of those lies that were being proclaimed. Her act of refusing to allow unrighteousness to flourish contributed to the so-called Orange Revolution, which brought true freedom to the people of Ukraine. Now, I'm not for a moment suggesting that she was living out a life dedicated to God, but her righteous passion for the truth serves as an example to us, to all of us as followers of Christ. Our lives ought to be characterized by a passion for righteousness, a passion for doing what is right, for living right according to God's will, for doing what is in God's will. Recognizing our need for Christ, grieving over our sin, and living in meekness before God must produce that, that passionate desire to live according with, to God's will. And this righteousness isn't just about our own lives. Such righteousness also seeks social righteousness, justice, Integrity. And beloved in Christ, that passion for living in accordance with God's will should be as important to us as food and drink. That's why Jesus talks about hungering and, and thirsting for it. It must be part of our lives. It 
But we have, must have that deep and passionate desire for it. So the first four Beatitudes then speaking of, speak about this need for recognizing our need for Christ, grieving over our sin, living in meekness before God, and thirsting for righteousness. But then Jesus turns to four attitudes towards our fellow human beings. The first of these so-called Beatitudes of action tells us that those who are merciful are blessed. This attitude of compassion, attitude of gentleness, especially to those who are helpless or those who are in need, is based on the foundation of these of the previous Beatitudes. It's just another step on that staircase. You see, if we recognise our own spiritual bankruptcy, if we recognise our total dependence on the mercy of God expressed in Christ Jesus, how can we then not be merciful? How can we not express mercy to those who are just as wretched and just as sinful as we are? We're not called to be merciful because we want to receive mercy. No. We must be merciful because we have already received and we continue to receive and we will continue to receive mercy upon mercy upon mercy. Brother, sister, friend, is your life characterized by such mercy? By your willingness to be gracious? By your willingness to be forgiving? Are we compassionate? Or are we impatient with those who are in need? Those who are in need of compassion and patience and mercy. Are you and I merciful to those who have fallen? Or are we condescending? Or perhaps patronising? What do our actions towards others say about where we stand with Christ? Now Jesus calls the scribes and the Pharisees whitewashed tombs that that appear beautiful on the outside but are filthy and rotten on the inside. And that's the sort of image that he's working with here as well when he speaks about the pure in heart. Purity of the heart has to do not with only with um, not having divided loyalties in terms of our relationship with God. It's also about a devotion to God. It's about the type of devotion with which David prayed for God to create in him a clean heart. This purity of heart plays out in our lives in terms of the things that we think about in our private lives, the things that we do, of course, as well. It's reflected, for instance, by how we respond to humour that is, well, let's just say it's off-colour. It's reflected in the sincerity of our motives, and in the things that we love to do. It's reflected by a desire to be holy, to do God's will, to be set apart for God. It's about the things that we choose to do. But friends, this desire to be purified by God's holy fire also places us in the best position of bringing reconciliation into others' lives. You can't be a peacemaker before you let go of your own ego. You, can't, you can be a peacemaker if you are meek and gentle and you have to be willing to make that effort. Even if it means that you are knocked back, 
be a peacemaker, you have to be meek and gentle, compassionate. Search for righteousness. You have to be gentle. You have to be willing to make that effort. It's no wonder that Jesus can say, blessed is the peacemaker. And friends, being children of God also means being identified with God. And being identified with God is seldom well received in this world, is it? Living as these beautiful attitudes teach us may cause us discomfort. We may even be persecuted. Your friends may ridicule you for believing in Christ. Your family may call you a prude for failing to laugh at their off-color jokes. Some of your Christian brothers and sisters may stop inviting you to your to their homes. Your spouse may try to get you to do things against which you have a firm stand. Your colleagues might laugh at your faith. And the time may come when we as a church are also faced with persecution if we proclaim Jesus as the only way to eternal life. And yet Jesus says that those who are persecuted on his account are blessed. Is that a blessing that you're willing to be blessed with? Are you willing to take that hit, so to speak, to rejoice and to be glad? I pray that you are, I pray that we are, for there is a wonderful reward that those who suffer for his sake belong to the kingdom of heaven, as verse 10 says. This is what Jesus calls us to do. And he gives us that magnificent uh, promise. Those who suffer for his sake will enter the kingdom of heaven. For them the crown of righteousness awaits. For them there is eternal glory that far outweighs everything. Friends, left to ourselves, our natural beatitudes would sound something like this. Blessed are the rich. For they have it all and they have it now. Blessed are the loud and arrogant, for people defer to them. Blessed are those who fight for the good things in life, for they'll have a great time. But Jesus shows us that living lives of gratitude in his kingdom looks differently. Blessed indeed are those who are poor in spirit, who mourn over sin, who are meek, who have a healthy appetite for righteousness, who are merciful, who are pure at heart, who make peace and are persecuted for his sake. Beloved in Jesus, are our lives, are our lives pictures of these beautiful attitudes? Do we recognize the depth of, the, of our need for Jesus and grieve over our sin? Are we willing to serve rather than to be served? Do you yearn for righteousness to prevail in your life as well as in the world? Do we live lives of compassion with hearts devoted to God? Is your life characterized by making peace or perhaps by causing disunity? Are we willing to take a hit for Jesus from our friends, from our families, our colleagues? We can do this. Yes, we can do this in the strength of Christ. 
For it's only if we will place our hands in his steady and safe hands, only if we trust him, that we can do this. For he is faithful. And he will enable each one whom he has called. I say this to you in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that in it you have provided all that we need for our lives. Write your words unto our hearts, O Lord, so that we may not only hear them, but live them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.